Hello and welcome back to Payroll Question Time. It's a bit of a Christmas special this week. A couple of us have got our Christmas jumpers and decorations on to all of you that might be worried about what to do with all those gifts directors keep offering staff. And maybe if you're unsure about the benefits and expenses that you need to account for during Christmas dues, we're going to cover all of that today. So don't worry, stay tuned. Loads to get through. So on to today's topic discussions, which are autumn budget recap and roundup, attachment and investment changes, preparing for the festive period, real living wage, national minimum wage, and some hot topics as well. So jumping then to autumn budget recap and roundup, let's, I think, jump straight off the bat with our tax position in England and Northern Ireland. Simon, if you'd like to take the lead. Uh, yes, so uh, it's grateful that the Chancellor had an earlier budget than this year, because the 11th of March was a little too late, especially for the software developers to get any changes uh, view. So this year is a little different. We have half the information available so at least we can do something in the interim but uh, the half available position in relation to England and Northern Ireland is there is no change so nothing has changed whatsoever there's no tax code uplift no change to tax rates no change to personal allowance no change to thresholds and bandings so that was easy wasn't it so what, what are some of the things we're missing then? Samantha, what are some of the things perhaps that uh, for halfway there that we're, we're, we're waiting on? Well, we're still, of course, waiting on Scotland. Um, we're waiting for confirmation on what Scotland's, uh, Scotland is going to do with its rates and thresholds. It has, of course, as a result of devolution, uh, the power to set its own thresholds and to set its own rates. Um, and so I'd, I haven't heard when they are due to hold their budget uh, in Scotland. Uh, Simon might have a date in mind. Yes, yeah, within two weeks. But the, the challenge we sometimes have, so I think it's about the 14th of December comes to mind. So almost within a couple of weeks, it might be a few days before. The challenge we sometimes have with Scotland is it then is ratified in by February because it's the start of the process. However, uh, the coalition in Scotland may be a little stronger in early years when we suddenly had an 11th hour change. And of course, we've got the Welsh, but the Welsh can't change the threshold, um, the, uh, the values, all they can change is the percentage. So uh, in effect for Wales, 10% gets knocked off and then they decide their own rate. Well, so far they've decided on 10%. So actually it's no change, but we won't know that. I think the Welsh budget is on the 20th of December. So with not much changing, Lou, were there any major surprises in this autumn budget or were there no changes a surprise in itself? I think that the, the fact that there was less changes than we had anticipated um, based on the fact that we've been working through COVID for the last 12 to 18 months, I thought that they might have made further changes. You know, they would have looked at the tax. They would have looked further at national insurance. But even just the introduction of the tax and social well-being levy and the fact that it does have to be demonstrated on a payslip, I think is going to offer maybe challenges in itself. And of course, we then have to prepare for the following year whenever it has to be shown on the payslip completely separately. And it's looking ahead at that information um, is enough really to be thinking about at the meantime. So let's talk about then about tax relief for non-taxpayers. Um, Andy, perhaps you can comment on this from uh, from your perspective. Sorry, I put it on mute because I was coughing. Um, one of the things that um, 
was announced was the um, the difficulty for net pay arrangement schemes. So this is where you take the pension contribution before you calculate the tax through payroll. For those people who are non-taxpayers, they won't actually get any tax relief. They'll pay their full, say 5%, and they won't get any tax relief on that amount. That's the amount they pay into the scheme. Meanwhile, if you've got a relief at source scheme, this is where the contribution is reduced by the basic rate tax. So it's gone from like 5% and get down to 4%, and that 4% is deducted from the individual's net pay and paid over to pension provider. And that extra 1% is then paid by HMRC into the pension scheme. Those people automatically get tax relief, even if they're not paying tax. And there's been a lot of pressure on the government to say, come on, this is unfair for those people in net pay arrangement schemes. So the government put a consultation out and they've now announced what that is. So Treasury uh, did that and they've said that from 2020, 24, 25 tax year, they now look at those individual records and work out how much extra needs to be paid in. I'd pay to the individual, not to the pension scheme, pay to the individual to offset the fact that those people in net pay arrangement schemes are paying the full amount into the pension scheme. So that little 1%, the difference between 4 and 5% contribution will be given to the individuals in the following tax year for those non-taxpayers. Super. That's Anything to add to that, Simon? Uh, yes. Yeah, so... The Tax relief on pensions has been speculated on for a number of years, uh, and uh, there's, obviously there's been uh, kind of a view that the higher rate taxpayers, the additional rate taxpayers, have had an unfair advantage. And uh, what about the lower paid? I mean, it's interesting we call it tax relief because actually they haven't paid the tax to have the relief from. But uh, the proposal from the government equalises the position in effect, but not for some years. Um, but the good news, I guess, for some uh, is that the current structure was not changed because there was speculation that tax relief might have been um, brought down for everyone to, say, a figure such as 25 percent. And uh, I think that would probably have been seen as a bit of a, a, a disaster or a, a bit of a, a self-inflicted injury to some of the political parties if they had because they may have antagonized a lot of their supporters plus a lot of the discussion on pensions and the higher thresholds etc um, often relates to NHS uh, workers I'm thinking such as uh, consultants surgeons doctors mm -hmm. the lifetime allowance that, that's frozen until 2026 million odd pounds you know so that's yeah it's, it has a big impact on because it's actually when you start looking at it, a million pounds seems a lot of money, but you can accrue that quite quickly. Um, not if you're lowly paid, admittedly, which is sad and, and all that sort of thing, but the it's not the very top payers that will be the only ones that suffer from that cap. It will yeah, be normal no, I, people I, as well. Yeah, indeed. Actually, I've, had a question, think... sorry, I've had a question sorry. come in from the pension side. Sorry, Samantha, I'll, I'll come back to you in just one moment. But while well, I've got you there, Andy, I've had a quick question come in on the pension side, which comes in from Grace, which says, uh, we operate a net deduction pension for employees doing their self-assessment. How do they reflect this in their self-assessment? Do they reflect the full employee contribution or deduct the tax on the amount before declaration? Oh, actually, I'm not... Um... I'm not sure, actually, what what you actually fill in on. I mean, it's obviously they've got, if they've got, um, yes. they need to complete the the return to say, actually, I've got 
extra tax relief. And the same, you think even in Scotland, as with where they've got um, the 21% tax relief rate, uh, tax rate, there's that 1% difference between basic rate, which is the the key thing you're comparing it against. But yeah, I don't know if Simon might know in terms of the uh, self-assessment well, return or. Uh, uh, sure, there is a box for them. You would, if you're in an, this is where it gets very difficult with terminologies because I think, uh, I, th I think we understand what's meant by a net deduction. But when you talk to the taxman, they don't know what you're talking about because I think you're describing a, a relief at source scheme because schemes that have netted them are actually taken from gross because they view it from the point of tax. So what they're saying is what is taxed. So whenever HMRC hear the word net, they think that's the amount that's being taxed, not where the pension deduction takes place. So it's uh, just clarify that because that's really confusing for people. And quite often these tax relief status uh, gets confused and put up in reverse. You've probably got some stats on that, uh, Andy. I don't know if you want to comment on that. But there's there's an element of uh, there's a box on the self-assessment that will tell you to put the amount. And you're saying you're, you're talking about the higher rate and the additional rate taxpayers. But you wouldn't put it on there if it's a net pay arrangement. I think you put the contribution value for the relief at source and then they'll work out the difference. Mm -hmm. But I'm not yeah. giving tax advice or pensions advice no. because I'm not allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is just facts. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Facts. Yeah. And, and yeah. point enough, the revenue, if you look at their basic pay YE tool, their sort of gross to net calculator uh, that, that a lot of employers use, you'll see that what they say is, is net pay arrangement and not net pay arrangement. That's their two definitions. And if you then click on the help for not net pay arrangement, it then says relief at source. Um, so, so yeah, the terminology is fascinating and not very helpful because it is back to front in, in the logical understanding of those terms. I think, can I just say, please, all of you wonderful payroll people, sure. especially if you're a bureau, look at your payroll system, make sure you've got the right tax relief specified because we can see, because we get RTI data and we also know what you declared as your pension scheme. So if you, for instance, got NEST, you should be doing relief at source. If you've got net pay arrangement in for NEST, you've got it wrong. You need to unpick it and speak to NEST about that. And if you've got now, for instance, then the net pay arrangement only. So it should be net, net pay arrangement. And if you've got people's, you could be either. So need to find out. Make sure you get it right. Yeah, great advice. Great advice. And Samantha, I, I unceremoniously cut you off before. Oh. So sorry if there was a point you're about to make. That's right. Story <laughs> of my life, Nick, not a notable problem at all. I just really wanted to confirm that this this latest change and it and it impacts those in a net pay arrangement. So um, as Simon was saying earlier, that's the that's where the pension contribution comes from gross pay before tax is calculated. So tax is therefore tax relief is therefore allocated at whatever the rate of tax payable is by that particular taxpayer. So if they are a higher rate taxpayer, they will get the tax relief at the higher rate. Um, whereas, of course, this this particular change impacts, uh, it's anticipated to impact 1.2 million individuals to a total value of only £53 a year. We're not talking significant sums, um, but it was just about equaling out the playing field because where these are low earners, 
having that deduction, that pension contribution taken from gross pay where you don't pay tax means you get no no tax relief. Um, whereas those equal low low earners having a, a deduction and a relief at source scheme were still getting that top up from the from the tax um, tax system in HMRC, and that was what was seen as as being the uh, inequality here. So, so not big, but it's Yes, no, it's a it's a great it's a good win um, for those who lobbied hard for this. So, so let's move on then to uh, the the one change that has happened. I know most of it stayed the same as Simon mentioned, but there's been a change to universal credit. So, Simon, you would like to take the floor here? Yes, happy to, uh, Nick. I was just going back to, if you don't mind, to a little comment Lou said about the payslip message on health and social care. And it's been a big debate within our own organization. We can potentially put a centralized message on for everyone. But there was some, and I don't know what you feel, Lou, because uh, it kind of impacts um, your own location there, is health and social care levery is an English thing. And there's an element of thinking would some employers object. Uh, that's one aspect of just thinking. So there's an element of do we, I mean, we offer company level, payroll level, whatever message. So you can apply it once and it will keep it for the whole year for everybody on at your choice. But do we enforce it on employers or do we give you the choice to have it? Because it's felt that some might object and it's not actually compulsory. It's a voluntary message. But moving on to universal credit. Uh, so they're saying it's a thousand pound boost for two million workers. So there's a increase of 500 pound per year in relation to the amount you can earn before universal credit is reduced. And simultaneously, there's a reduction of taper. So the taper reduction is changed from 63% to 55%. And so it's just worth noting that. Uh, and the, uh, the other aspect, sorry, going on changing a bit of things we don't know. We still don't know what the statutory payments are. We still don't know what the student loan plan to and, and postgraduate loans are. We still don't know what... Uh, uh, um, I was trying to think if there's any pensions and auto enrollment. We still don't know that, Andy. So as soon as you can twist Guy's arm, that would be great. <laughs> well, I'm hoping by mid-December we might find out what the thresholds are. Yeah. Sure. So is, is there anything you'd like to add then, Lou, if we talk about the health and social care levy and that payslip message? I know you, you commented on the poll results, but anything from a budget perspective that you'd like to, uh, to add some commentary to? I think, I mean, as Simon has said, it does depend on the employer, but being part of the big four, then we have our responsibilities that we have to um, uphold within our own oh. obligations as a business and as a centre and as a managed bureau service. So it's considering everything. So I have a, an EY message that I have to consider putting on our payslips, but as well, we have to consider what the employer wants. And obviously, if they want to make any amendments and to go back to as well, um, some software providers um, obviously received that message on the 17th of November about the message, but they've still to put out into the public arena what they're actually going to do and whether they require an individual payslip to be done with the message or if they're going to have it within the software. I can see Samantha nodding furiously to everything you said there. So anything you'd like to yeah. add to that, Sam? Obviously, you're processing a lot of bureau payrolls as well for different yeah, clients. Yeah, no, so. indeed, we we have the same uh, same challenge. And whilst we might not be in the the, the big four, uh, top four, we still have those same that service levels um, to deliver to clients. But I'm aware that many of our clients might say, you know, 
this is politics. And, and when you actually totted up those results, it was very close between those that kind of accepted it. It's fine. 51 percent, 49 percent with a total of the other three, 30 um, percent don't, don't want to do it because it's politics. And, and, I, and I know I commented um, on an entry that Simon made on this one. That it's just it, it could create a whole heap of questions to the payroll team that we don't we don't need to deal with it. It's like, well, what else? What does my tax get spent on? It's like, go and yeah, talk sure. to HMRC. We just talk to this hand because this hand doesn't care. <laughs> you know? and, and I'm still thinking, well, hang on a minute. What happened to that 1% that Gordon Brown said was going to be spent on the, hospi on the hospitals? Was it? <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, I, I'm there with the 30%. And, you know, if, if there isn't a penalty for not doing it, then this is from a personal perspective, obviously not from a professional perspective. I would be tempted to say, no, not doing it, not doing it. Well, it's before we open that hornet's nest well, then, that's brilliantly made. That's, uh, it's another area I know that you're quite passionate about, Samantha. You've talked about it's this a dilemma. on the free ports. What's the latest on veterans and free ports that we need to make people aware of? Well, of course, the latest on uh, veterans and freeports is that the software developers have been issued with further guidance and there's been an update um, to the current year's uh, guidance for software developers with an example of a very complicated formula. And if you if you're like me and your head explodes with formulas, um, you, you, you take a look at it, cried into a bucket and kind of <laughs> moved away. Um, but there is now an example um, for the veterans calculation, because obviously the veterans zero percent rate um, for employers taking on veterans in the first 12 months of their civilian employment. That zero rate percent was introduced from this year, but our systems, of course, can't cope with it because HMRC couldn't bring it in fast enough in terms of their specifications. <laughs> so at the end of this year, and Simon, I'm sure we'll, we'll have a, a better update on this, by the end of this year for um, eligible employers, they will be able to recover, calculate and recover that amount uh, manually. Um, I think I say manually. I use that term lightly because nothing's manual these days. Um, now, as for free ports, of course, free ports we know is coming in from next year. There are a number of new free ports. I'm particularly pleased living in the East Midlands. Uh, we've got one uh, in the East Midlands airport. And for new employees who are uh, who work for at least 60 percent of their time, in a Freeport location, and a Freeport location can span 27 miles, I have read reassuringly this morning. Um, so where they spend up to 60% of their time working in the Freeport area, um, then the employer um, can repay uh, secondary threshold on earnings up to 25,000, I believe, I believe uh, is the latest. And of course, that information is starting to filter through. There will be further guidance, I believe, on the, in the CWG two guide, which is the employer's guide um, to uh, Paige Werner Nicks. But I'm sure Simon will have more from our software developer. I did see a big St. Nicholas sized grin come across Simon's face as you were going through that. So Simon, any comments you'd like to add? Uh, yes, certainly the software developers have been in contact with what they call the software development support team at HMRC with a number of questions, uh, predominantly because the uh, you say, what's all the fuss? And I'll, I'll say fuss because it's the Freeport upper secondary threshold has magically been inserted into the calculation of all national insurance, uh, which just seems a bit bizarre. So I think there's an element of what really you've got to change the, the calculation for every NIC letter. And I think the response is yes, which is interesting. 
and the other aspects. Uh, you know, I find some of these things a bit uh, amusing. It's a bit like uh, when HMRC called their electronic business FBI, filed by internet, and uh, and the actually the online service team were called. Um, uh, I can't remember what the fir first letter. Uh, stood for Sam, you might, but it actually spelt the word loss. And so it was strange that they don't, but there's an element of here we've got fussed and fizzle. So the NIC category letters are fizzle. And so there's a bit of a fuss and a bit of a fizzle to the to uh, Freeports, but we look forward to it. And the big query we're getting as an organization is how many employers will actually fall into this? Uh, because lots of software will have old legacy solutions new solutions, which ones do you change? But at least we do have the detail. Um, the slight adjustment, I think, Sam, is, is quite right. The annual fust is £25,000. The periodic fust for a week was different to the original specs. Well, the original specs were based on an annual fust of Oh, twenty-five thousand pounds. So it seemed a bit strange that the weekly value changed by a pound, but the annual one didn't. But uh, that's where we are. That's all the joys of being in payroll software development. Uh, and so I'm sure everybody is up and ready for it and be there for April if it applies to you. But will it apply to you? I'm wondering. But it does interfere with the general calculation of national insurance. I guess the other aspect on veterans, I think you mentioned, Sam, is that, yes, there is a manual process to reclaim veterans for this current uh, NIC year. So you actually have to pay the employer's national insurance. Then you can claim it back. There is an encouragement for software developers to allow you to do that via FPS. The, the oddity about that is you can't until the 6th of April for an old year. So I think you'll probably find that a lot of software developers won't actually do it because it's too late when you can. So and if there's a manual process to do it, well, I say manual, if, uh, an, a non-FPS process to do it, then they'll probably say, well, just just upload your spreadsheet and you've got your, your grant without us actually having to change two years worth of FPS change for something. Uh, and there was a plea from software developers to actually say, well, can't we do this in March and at least do it for month 12? And the answer came back, no. So it's, it's, a, it's a funny one, but we'll get there. It all adds to the magic and excitement of payroll software development. I just think you were determined to get as many Christmas terms into each answer. You've added fizzle and magic and, uh, and sparkle and all these words, Simon. We'll see how we get on during the rest of this. Sure. Whoever said payroll was simple, I think you've uh, you've answered that question as well. Certainly is not. I think we've um, covered the uh, what are we still waiting for. So rather than jump into that for the moment, we've had quite a few questions come in. So thank you, everyone, for your participation. Here's the first question, um, which I'm, I'll let you choose who would like to answer this one. Uh, perhaps either Lou, Sam or Simon. The question, it comes in from Susanna and it's says when employees leave the business and have accrued holiday pay to pay on leaving should this be paid at normal day rate salary um, slash 260 or should this be paid at average holiday the same as it is when employees take the holiday that makes sense yeah it it does holiday pay is a very confusing um uh, obligation on employers and the law is i'm going to say woolly at best and there also advice around it over the years has been, yeah, we've got a, well, uh, the other, op 
uh, I was on a call yesterday and they used the the term atomic option. So uh, atomic option is apparently an IT terminology. So I've squeezed that one in as well. I think that gets me 500 brownie points uh, for <laughs> squeezing in atomic option. But uh, uh, the latter you described, I would suggest is correct, is it should be paid on the 52 week average as a minimum. But you can pay more if you wish to under the contract terms. Um, accrual is a funny term because in law, accrual really only applies to the first year of employment. Uh, after that, it's a proration of the annual entitlement, although sometimes it's referred to as an accrual. It's not. And you don't actually accrual cash or prorate cash. You actually prorate entitlement based on length of employment in the year. And the other aspect, uh, I, I could go on this for this for years. This is a challenge, Nick. The other okay. aspect is for the first year, the accrual basis is different to when you leave and the proration because accrual happens in twelfths of entitlement, whereas a leaving proration is based on number of days you've worked. And so just be careful on some of that. So I would say it's based on the 52 week average, ignoring zero weeks. Super. Thank you. I hope that answers your question, Susanna. Please let me know in the chat box if you have any further questions regarding that. Another question over to you then, Sam, moving from right to left. What is the current position with employees who may be isolating or have COVID related illness? Do we still pay SSP from day one? Um, I'm going to say yes. I've not read anything that differs with that view in the last week. <laughs> so I would say yes, yeah. you still need that period of incapacity to work, of course, and that period of incapacity to work trips up many, many an employer and many a payroll and has done for, since statutory sick pay was first introduced. We still have to have those four continuous calendar days um, where somebody is incapable of work under that contract due to illness. Um, but yes, where where we have a COVID related illness um, and a PIW has been um, established, then yes, it would be payable that those three waiting days wouldn't need to be served. Fantastic. And my last question then before we move on, I knew that the budget was always going to take up a fair portion of our time. Keen to get on to the other subjects area as well. So last question here. We have an employee who is on a very bracket long term sick. They continue to accrue holiday pay at an average of the last 52 work weeks over three years. But what happens when the sickness exceeds three years? So there are zero worked weeks in the three year reference period. Does the accrued holiday then get calculated at zero? I think this is a John question, oh. isn't it? Because this is a legal question, <laughs> I would have said. Well, it turns out partly it's, it can be regulated by, by contract. Uh, and there have been some European cases as to the extent of what may be the permissible type of carryover period. Uh, but normally you wouldn't see it being three years. Um, you see it being a shorter period uh, in terms of that, something along the sort of 18 months. It's because most contracts will say, that it'll say you've got to use your holiday or lose it, but it may apply a, a permissible period during which you can carry it over. Um, but the stretch of that is is not a, as far as three years. Okay, yeah. great. Well, let's and jump the into the next. The Go on, Simon. Sorry, I think it, the average holiday period is a, a maximum of 104 weeks. So the averaging period will slowly shrink until you get to a point where there is no pay to average. 
So it's just okay. a consideration, but it will start dropping. So you, you don't keep the 52 week average earnings and that's what it is on 52 week average for the payment. It will drop to 51, and then 50, and then 49, 48, keep on dropping until it gets to zero. At the point it drops to zero, they haven't got average earnings. Great point. Great Just point. Well, let's move on to the, uh, the next slide, which is all to do with attachment and investment changes. Uh, the Welsh Government seeking views on the proposal to update the earnings thresholds for attachment of earning orders or AEOs. Who would like to kick off here? I'm well, happy to if you want me to, Nick. Well, go on, Sam. You can do it. I was, I would, well, I, I'm, I'm, go, I'm going to jump to the last one because I think the last one gives us a nice introduction into the, the first uh, bullet point. So Scotland have, um, have uh, set, uh, published and approved their rate changes um, for their tables for the next three years. Now, they have a set process for reviewing um, the arrestment change, uh, the arrestment levels, the threshold levels um, every three years um, to take account of the uh, the increase um, to the cost of living. Now, the Welsh government, uh, the Welsh Assembly have opened a consultation. Normally, Wales and England would sit sort of pretty much identically in their operation. But there hasn't been a change since I think it was 19... Uh, no, 2007 was the last amendment, um, and so and the last amendment then covered a period from 1998 to 2006. So the increase was the equivalent of 36.5 percent. You can tell that I looked looked this up, and there hasn't been a change since then. Um, so if there were to be a change from say next year. The um, average earnings would take us to about 41.8% increase, and that's what Wales are, are basically kind of asking the question: Should we do this? Should we increase to take account of the increase in the, uh, the uh, cost of living? And um, they have also asked, and I, I think the answer is pretty much going to be yes. We, we would do that, of course, we would. It's nonsensical. Um, but they've also asked the question as to whether or not there should be a set period where they would. Uh, routinely uh, change the um, change the rates just as Scotland do with the arrestment orders um, and again I'd, I I would say yes but my question of course is what about England there was no talk about England this is a Welsh Assembly issue rather than a, an English government can I say an English government we don't have an English government but um, Westminster haven't talked about this as a consultation so it'd be interesting to see what happens there. That leads us on nicely into the next part of the, of the slide then really, which is how does that relate to the complexity of pay attachments for England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland? Lou? I think it's the fact that we now have really four devolved governments and they all act differently. They all pass different things and they all act at a different speed. Very often Northern Ireland can be very much behind the curveball and even how they um, operate with what Boris and the government put through um, Westminster. So again, complexity is still there. I'm sure everybody agrees that the complexity around attachment of earning orders on a day-to-day -day basis, um, whenever, for example, as a managed payroll bureau service, we attach um, the earnings to the employee's pay slips and you know it's run through the payroll it can lead to difficult questions because people don't necessarily understand the full impact of them and what they actually mean right and obviously yeah. there's been a, some scottish investment changes which have been approved simon would you like to comment here 
Well, yeah, they went through the Scottish Parliament on the 12th of November. That's, uh, Sam's talked about that. So they changed every three years. They're actually applicable from April. The interesting thing about Scotland is law is quite often retrospective and the rest of the United Kingdom, it isn't. So um, that doesn't mean that the law applies earlier, but it does. The new application applies to earlier rulings, if I put it that way. So if you have an earnings arrestment in place now in Scotland, come April, the rules will change for that pre-existing order. In England, Wales and Northern Ireland, they don't because they're set at the point the order was set. So if Wales change an order, that doesn't mean new people will go to the new order amount. It means that new orders from the 6th of April go to the new order amount. Pre-existing orders remain as they were. So that's the difference between Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom is the new table doesn't replace the old for pre-existing orders. It only applies to new. And that's all part of the complexity of it all. The other interesting thing I think about Scotland is uh, their orders are not priority orders. So other things always get taken first if they apply. They're always at the back of the queue, which seems uh, strange, but uh, that's the way the law is. It keeps you in a job. Is that right, John? Absolutely. <laughs> it is all... <laughs> Excellent. Well, we've had a question. We've got to go to another poll in just a moment. Before we get there, we've had another question come in from Eleonora, which just says the holiday pay period of reference. It is clear that this should be calculated on 52 weeks. However, we pay on a monthly basis, not weekly. So we can't consider the 52 weeks and we have to consider months instead. Is that risky? Uh, <laughs> yes, the Bayes would say you have to do it on a weekly basis. However, equally, they'd say uh, you need to just convince a judge that you're being practical and reasonable in the calculation you perform, because I'd agree with you. Uh, it's very difficult for a monthly. And in fact, if you de delve deeper into the law, uh, the requirement is actually that you include any uh, worked time up to the prior Saturday you pay the holiday. The thing is, you might not pay that for another six weeks. So how do you know what that is? I don't know if John's got any thoughts there, but I think it's an element of it's very difficult law to actually apply in actual practicality. And I think people just do their best. I, I, I think that's right. I've, I've dealt with lots of holiday pay cases uh, over the years, uh, but they tend not to be uh, around that, which is something which is a little bit more on the margins. Um, uh, and if it came for an employment judge, I, th I think they'd probably be sitting there scratching their head trying to, to work it through, <laughs> is my honest view. Yeah, great question, though, there, Eleanor. I think it's a pragmatic choice sometimes. Yeah. Coming in, let me ask this question. My company is thinking of giving all staff a voucher instead of having a Christmas party this year. The value would be £30. Can this be treated as a trivial benefit and therefore not subject to tax or NI and not treated as a benefit in kind? Yes. <laughs> Great. Very easy. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, yes. That's a simple <laughs> Go on. It, it's not there a is some dependency. Yes, yes. It's yes. less than £50 to provide. It's not cash or a voucher exchangeable for cash. Uh, it's not due contractually, uh, unless, of course, they arguably, if they have a contractual entitlement to an annual party, you could kind of, if you were being a bit grinchy, you could argue that. Uh, but I wouldn't have said so. And as long as it's not being given in exchange for a salary sacrifice. 
Um, so how oh, would that response change, Samantha? If that value was £100 and it was still a voucher that couldn't be exchanged for cash, um, would that change the response? If it's £100, then that takes it out of being a trivial benefit. A trivial benefit is uh, where it costs the employer £50 or less to provide. So £100 clearly um, is, is way in excess of that. Um, I mean, it has to be said that the trivial benefit could be given throughout the year for a number of different reasons. So a Christmas present, a birthday present, the celebration of a birth of a child or getting married. Um, so as long as you're not in a, you know, a close company relationship, you know, you, you're not related to the owners of a, the, uh, the business, then there is no limit on how many trivial benefits could be provided. Uh, but no, if you were given £100, um, then that would take it well out of being a, a trivial benefit. Um, and then it would be subject to tax NI and everything goes with it. There, there would be implications, yes. And so um, how the employer would deal with that um, would depend on um, how generous they were looking to be. For example, okay. thinking about a pay-as-you-earn settlement agreement. Um, sure. Or, or the like. Now this, the other question may be for you, John, uh, potentially, but it says over the Christmas period, our backs get sent off to the Bureau three days early. But at this time of year, year, we also seem to get a number of same day resignations where employees are refusing or not working their notice periods. It means that some employees are receiving these resignations around the same time that we've already submitted the backs, which means they now owe the company money back. What is the best way to help us manage this process to recoup any overpayments? Well, in, in terms of managing the process of overpayments, so effectively yeah. they, they resign and get paid on the same day, do they? Well, I, presumably, if they, I, I guess it sounds like that they're running the backs payroll three days early, and then they've yeah. they've resigned before those three days of work, presumably. Then I mean they've overpaid them. So, what would be the best process to recoup that amount? What, well, well probably at the end of the month, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. If, if what you haven't got is is anything that that you can effectively sort of claw back. Um, in terms of overpayments, that then your only viable route is going to be taking some legal action against them. Uh, and right. whether that's whether that's cost effective or, or not is an entirely different matter. Depends on the value, really. Sure. sure, that makes that makes total sense. Just thinking. Well, just covering. We can cover some of the law on what's allowed because that might overcross with the gifts and actually can reinterpret those gifts to be actually for funding of a, a party. But John, you just mentioned it. Why are employment lawyers busy after Christmas parties? Well, uh, because there's always something that, that happens. There's always something. And um, uh, over the years, uh, normally in the run up to Christmas, we, we get asked to, to, to draw something that reminds people of, of the type of behavior that they need to exhibit at a Christmas party. Uh, and whilst 90% of people may comply, I'm sure 20% of the people actually read what I put out anyway. But, but there's always a small cohort uh, of things, and uh, it, it tends to be the usual things that you would expect. That someone disgruntled uh, at their boss, and uh, after six Volker Red Bulls, uh, they get a little bit more courage than they might have done otherwise, uh, and things get a bit feisty. Um, uh, and also, there, there are other issues. Sometimes they're more serious as well. Um, in terms of sexual harassment and sexual assault and all of those things. Um, so from a sort of protecting the business point of, of view, it's helpful to, to send something out. Because, of course, in the workplace, uh, an employer is vicariously liable for the actions of their employees. And if you've got an employee who discriminates against another employee, um, then the company will be liable for their actions. 
And uh, part of the uh, sort of advice that you give and what you set out in terms of behavior is, is to cover the fact that what is in work is a gradually expanding concept. So if you're in an office and you do something to someone else, well, fine, that's the workplace. But a Christmas party is really an extension of that office from employment law purposes, because it's a, an event which is organized by work. Often alcohol is provided you know, by the employer. So from an employment law perspective, it's really seen as just an extension of the office. And things have even got a bit further than that in terms of potential liability. So there have been cases where you've had a works Christmas party and then there's an after party. And in one case, in the after party, again, punch up, you know, it's the boss in that situation who actually physically assaulted in quite a serious way a member of his team who had quite serious injuries. Uh, and that was held to still be an extension of the workplace. But that's not widely known. And people think, well, as soon as I leave, uh, as soon as I leave uh, my office and head to that, that Christmas party, then effectively it's me time rather than work time. Uh, and that's why we have to send out uh, the, the usual behavioural warnings. And, you know, apart from that, I'm, I'm rather humbug. So uh, I always like to, to suck the life out of any occasion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> am, I, am I right in thinking, John, also that the at these Christmas events, if you're going out to an event, that the employer also has a responsibility to make sure the employees get home safely? Well, yes, that's always, always the advice that, that we give. There's a whole series of advice that, that, that you give about risk assessments, uh, ensuring that there isn't any discrimination in, in terms of is the venue accessible uh, to everyone? Um, is the menu appropriate? for all the, the people in your team from a religious, cultural or, or other perspective. And certainly from a, a welfare point of view, uh, then we always advise about making sure that people can get home safely. And a lot of employers you know, will provide some form of transport. And if they can fund that, that's something that we'd usually recommend. I think it's, it's worth mentioning here because I think considered work time. Sorry. So a lot of payroll managers, um, as you say, they may be siloed out into different teams. So maybe payroll managers or heads of payroll that are actually responsible for their own little team parties, so to speak. So I think it's really important advice for those that are hosting their parties, the departmental parties in particular, just to be reminded of some of those things you mentioned there, John, because they could be, you know, a head of payroll or a payroll manager managing their first ever Christmas party for their team and not necessarily aware of of some of those responsibilities. I think it was really worth worth highlighting. Let's jump into the first subject then within the uh, within the slide, which is early paydays. So Simon, let's come back to you. Let's inform the, uh, the people on the webinar about early paydays over the festive period. Yeah, sure. So a significant number of employers bring their payday forward and uh, and we don't think anything of that, are we? So in SD Works, most of our clients will process their December pay in the first two weeks and we go very light for the last two weeks of December, extremely light, virtually nothing happens. I don't know if that's the experience for Sam's uh, team and Lou's, but ours is everything's done in first two weeks, then there's nothing yeah. for two weeks. Uh, the challenge there is for universal credit claimants. So uh, they may find that they then are disqualified from universal credits, either because the payment is early and appears twice. So it looks like they're being paid twice, two months money in one month, 
or etc. So the advice from HMRC, in fact, the instruction from HMRC is that on your full payment submission, you should use your usual payday and not the earlier pay point. Uh, they're asking for that. So there have been some court cases where people have been challenged and managed to get the universal credit um, calculations adjusted, but that can take months. So there's an element of a plea of if you're paying early, report your normal day on the FPS to HMRC. Universal credit will not be interrupted. And what are the considerations then around gifting? I know you've talked about some of them already in the question that was posed during the poll. Anything you'd like to add, Simon, Lou or Samantha? I'm just going to pick up. Sorry. Sorry, Simon. I'm just going to pick up what Simon has said. If anybody wanted more information, it is on the October HMRC bulletin. And for all the information, and there's links that will help you understand um, better or fuller about paying early at Christmas because it really is a real, really important area to consider, especially when you have your own employees. I think the important thing on the tax for the trivial benefits is that it's under fifty pounds, fifty pounds and under, and it is important that you do you do stick to that so that you're covered. Yes, because I, I would add there, because there was a the you gave an example of what if it was a hundred pounds worth of vouchers. Well, if we're talking about £100 worth of vouchers, then we start to look at the taxable and nickable um, impact. So what impact is there for NIC? And I believe that that would, that would sit on your payroll in that pay reference period for class one national insurance contributions, um, that voucher, but not for tax purposes. So for tax purposes, depending on what, um, I mean, of course, the employer may be able to get, get this through on a, a pay-to-earn settlement agreement, um, but um, if not, um, then it would sit on the first available payday or that, that payroll in that pay reference period for class one national insurance contributions. Now, the impact on the employee could vary depending on what they earn. If they earn below the, um, the uh, primary threshold, then they won't pay any national insurance on that contribute on that voucher. But if they're a higher payer and they pay in excess of the primary threshold, then they'll pay national insurance um, on that. And of course, next year, that insurance hit will be even higher than it is now. Um, uh, and then, of course, the tax for tax purposes, it would be reported at the end of the year on a P11D unless the employer um, has made arrangements to the contrary. So, so there, would, there would be tax to pay on that for the employee as well, but it'd be, it wouldn't be uh... Um, reconcile till the end of the year on the P11D. Is that correct? Um, yeah, on a P11D. Uh, officially. Oh, unless and oh yeah, uh, yeah, because it it wouldn't even be would it be included for payrolling? Uh, my brain's gone dead as to whether or not vouchers would. I, it, it, it it could, could be. be. Yes, yeah. but it is a class one liability in real time, and yeah. so it's a strange mix, isn't it? Because it comes under. There's a difference between Schedule D, income tax, and Schedule E, and so it's a very strange beast. Yep. It's worth highlighting because if a client thinks they're giving £100 as a benefit, actually after tax, it's it's not quite that amount, is it? They go and spend their voucher and then they realise at the end of the year, they've, they, if they're in the higher you know, tax bracket, they actually spent £40 over what they wanted to. So it's yeah. no, absolutely it, it, worth, worth highlighting. Yeah, it can be quite significant. So it's it's worth considering how you're going to... If, if you're thinking of being that generous, then it might be better to actually give a gift 
Um, so a hundred pound turkey <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, or, or the, the nut roast equivalent. But you know what I mean? You, it, it would, so how it does would that be differ, better. Samantha? How does, how does a gift differ to a voucher? Well, a gift, a gift to the value of £100 because it's a Christmas gift wouldn't be considered, um, uh, wouldn't be considered for tax purposes. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm suddenly starting to panic. I'm looking at everybody's faces thinking, yeah, no, I'm almost certain that's the case. Um, Simon will soon put me right if that's not the case. Um, is, but... is there a threshold as well to that kind of gift at Christmas? What would there, would there be? I might be talking Sorry. rubbish. Yeah. I might There's be talking about <laughs> ignore me, ignore me. I would need to no, ignore me. No, it would it would still be it would still sit outside of a, a trivial benefit because it would be over the fifty pounds. Ignore me, ignore sure. me. I was having a moment yeah. there, so I've I've, I've yeah. got more wine in here. <laughs> it, it's worth just, just interfacing uh, section two six four of IT for two thousand and three on the annual parties and how that plays with the virtual because that's kind of uh, I'm not giving tax advice because I'm not regulated on this uh, speech to do so. So this is just general information. But um, it, the HMRC position was the cost of providing food, entertainment, equipment or other expenses which may be incurred in hosting a virtual event uh, will be exempt under Section um, 264 of IT for 2003 under the annual parties. So there's an element of what does an employer think they can do with that to hold a virtual event? Does that make sense? Am I doing a bit of a wink and a nod there of thinking is uh, you, if, you, if you've got a cost of food, entertainment or equipment or other expenses for a virtual event, it comes under the annual party's exemption. It could be, but it has also, because this, this was confirmed last year, wasn't it? Because, uh, yeah, um, it has to be yes. made available to all. That doesn't mean to say everybody has to attend, but it has to be made available yeah. to all. Um, and, it, you know, so it has to tick all of the usual boxes. And, it, and yes. of course, an annual, an annual event could be held at any time of the year, not just Christmas. And so quite often it's not uncommon for an employer to have a summer event and another one in the Christmas period. And that £150 limit um, would would be considered for both of them. Um, and um, so the employer would need to consider the impact that having multiple ones would have and look at the cost overall. Right. I know that I think the behavioural warnings piece we've probably covered a little bit uh, with John. We've had three questions come in. Thank you, audience, for keeping these coming in thick and fast. Let me start with the first one, which comes in from Jess. It says we offer long service gifts and our auditors advised us that if this spend is more than £50, that it is to be recorded on the P11D. This is different to what you've just said regarding gifts. Can you please advise which is correct? Please? Yes. Yeah. No, no. I took I took that back. So, so yeah, well spotted. Thank you. Uh, yes, I immediately took that back as uh, me being an absolute idiot. So, yeah, and drinking way too much mulled wine, way too <laughs> early in the Christmas period. So apologies for that. Apologies. Super. And next question we've had, as private health has increased, can we put a percentage on the PSA and payroll of the rest? No. <laughs> I don't believe you can have private medical on a PSA at all. It's uh, uh, just a suggestion I'd make. Okay. 
And then we have one more question from Lauren here. For the early pay date, we are paying our staff on the 17th of December. So on our run control for December, I have put actual pay date as the normal pay date and then back date as 17th December. Is that correct? It sounds good if the your normal pay date is the date that goes on the actual FPS submission to HMRC. That sounds correct. But it's worth checking that that is really the date that gets on the FPS. Great. Uh, let's kick off with a, a really simple question just to make sure this is defined for everyone here. I'm going to come back to you, Simon. What is the real living wage? So the real living wage is by the Living Wage Foundation. It's an independent organisation that calculates the real cost of living in the UK and it calculates a separate rate for the London living wage as well. And it's announced usually the uh, second weekend in November. So the living wage week was last week. So on Monday, the 15th of November, they announced the new living wage and new London living wage. And it's sometimes referred to as the real living wage. And uh, I'm just aware two of our customers are actually named as joining the list of 9,000 employers who now are signed up to claim their national living wage employers. Um, I can tell you the rates if, if you wish. Sorry, the real living wage across the UK is £9.90 and in London, because of waiting, it's £11.05 and you have six months to implement it from the 15th of November. Super. So who becomes a living wage employer, Samantha? Um, employers who sign up with the Living Wage Foundation. It's it's a it's an organisational choice um, to to do this. It's an entirely voluntary scheme. Um, I, it's interesting. I, I recall that when the national living wage was introduced by the Chancellor or the then Chancellor um, at an, uh, I think it was Norton Statement. I seem to recall that one coming out. It might have been it might have been the Spring Budget. Um, uh, he kind of he partially stole the title of real living wage. He kind of kind of kind of mi mixed it all up. Um, and we immediately saw um, uh, the announcement by I think it was Lidl um, that they were going to be a real living wage employer, you know, because there was, you know, there was a big question as to could employers afford to pay uh, the national living wage. And actually, we saw a bit of a, a, a an increase in the number of employers who announced that they had signed up to be a real living wage. It's very much an organisational thing. It may also be a requirement as a result of membership to a professional body. Um, I happen to know this because I, uh, my dearly beloved is a chartered architect and chartered practices, they have to pay all of their employees, and this is a requirement of the RIBA, they have to pay all of their uh, employees minimum uh, real living wage rates. So, you know, it's it, it could be a requirement that's that's put upon you as a result of of uh, you being a member of a chartered body. Super. And I know, I know Lou mentioned what the new rates are. When, when do they apply and uh, do they fully cover uh, national minimum wage? Lou? Well, whenever they're announced, when they were announced on the 15th of November, you have six months to put into place the, the new, the real living wage rates. So an employer that signed up and there is over 300 employees that are impacted by the, the 9000 companies that have signed up to it. And you have six months to implement it. So that means that all employees should be on the rate from the 15th of May 2022. 
Super. So, so how do these rules then differ from national minimum wage? Which I know we're going to come to in just a moment, but how do the uh, the living wage rules differ from national minimum wage? They well, differ the quite a bit. Sorry. Sorry. No, you go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I was going to say, sorry. I thought you'd moved on there. Um, yeah, they differ very significantly because the real living wage is about what I know. I know we will discuss this in, in more detail on the next slide, but um, is it is about the actual hourly rate that you're paying your member of um, staff, whereas the national minimum wage is is to a degree what they receive because there are elements um, that could come into play that would reduce um, actually that top line hourly rate of pay um, the, to the individual. Um, and I know we'll discuss a lot more about that uh, in the next slide. So. Well, let's, let's move then over to national minimum wage. I'm going to get the audience involved in one final poll before we get into these questions so we can talk what the new rates are. Uh, the, the poll is, do you think you are ready for national uh, the national minimum wage increase? Very simple poll for you, this one. Uh, simple yes or a simple no. So while we're waiting for that to come through, I've actually got a, a very, uh, I think it's going to be an easy question for you to answer um, while we are, while we wait, this has come in, which is national minimum wage, but we open that slide, just to check it doesn't apply for employees under 16 years of age. Is that correct? Uh, Samantha, perhaps I can go back to you um, for that while we're waiting for the results. Yeah. Or Simon. Uh, apologies, I, I, I was thinking about an earlier question. Uh, could you repeat the question again, Nick? Yeah, national minimum wage, to just to that, check, sure. it doesn't apply for employees under 16 years of age. No, no, it doesn't. That's correct. In fact, it doesn't apply to some 16-year-olds. So the requirements for national minimum wage qualification is that you've reached school leaving age. Uh, that differs across the four devolved nations, so just be careful with that. Generally, it's a date in May for England. Um, uh, in Scotland, it's a date in... Uh, May or February. Uh, now get it wrong, but if you want, I can provide those dates and also the Christmas break. So Scotland, there are actually two dates. One is set common for the nation, and the other is set dependent on when the school breaks for Christmas. Uh, so um, you have to actually have left school or have reached school leaving age to qualify for national minimum wage. Super. Hopefully that's given us time to get some results. Hopefully your audience members have all been answering this question. Do you think you are ready for national minimum wage increase? Let's have a look at those results, Hannah. There you go. 96% have said yes. That's what we call a payroll uh, webinar group fully, fully on top of everything that's happening. Fantastic results. Lou, would you like to make some comments on those? I think, I mean, I think it's great everybody, you know, being ready, but I think um, part of the reason why we asked the question is being business being business over the last year and a half, um, are employers able to, to meet the expectations of paying the national minimum wage? And that in itself is um, a big ask whenever you look at what businesses have faced and are facing, you know, so it's great that everybody's prepared. That's really, I mean, that's very reassuring for our profession. But I think we were thinking as well of as a business, what is the way ahead? And will businesses be able to make those payments come the April 22? That's a really, really good point. Well, let's jump in then to the national minimum wage and find out a little bit more about what's going on. So let's start with what are the new rates? Let's come back to you, Simon, if we may. Yeah, sure. I'm just picking up and maybe uh, saying, are we prepared? Um, uh, the word of caution I put there is I think that most of the people on the named and shamed list 
thought they were prepared before they were named. It's a good point. And so I just put that out as a as a as a thought. And certainly, when people have come to us that have gone on to deep audit, uh, when we spoke to them about you know you need to look at these things, they didn't have a problem, um, but they had a problem later. So what are the new rates? The new rates for um, 23 year olds and war is £9.50. That's an increase of 6.6%. Now, the shocker is the age 21 to, 30, uh, to 22. It's gone up to £9.18, which is 9.8% rise. Well, we may discuss, I guess, why. Uh, and, another, and the 18 to 20 year old has gone up to £6.83, which is a 4.1% rise. 16, 17 year olds, assuming they've left school, uh, £4.81, which again is a 4.1 rise. And it's interesting on the apprenticeship, and I think we'll probably discuss apprenticeships. The apprenticeship rate has gone up 11.9% uh, wow. to £4.81. And there's a reason. So maybe we'll come back to that. And the accommodation offset has gone up by eight points uh, to £8.70, uh, which is a rise of 4.1%. So generally the rise is 4.1, but you've got those others that have significantly risen. Well, let's, let's, let's focus on some of those whys then. You mentioned uh, there might be a why as to why the 9.9% was an increase uh, for 21 years. We start there and then maybe move on to apprenticeships afterwards, Simon. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, if employers are not aware, the goal of uh, the National Minimum Wage uh, Transformation Project over the next few years is that the national living wage will apply to 20, from 21. I think that's by 2024. And I believe, I suggest that the reason that the 21-22 year rate has risen so high is to uh, sort of chip away at that goal. So eventually you'll find it gets closer and closer. In fact, at the moment, it's only 32 pence apart. And how about the apprenticeship? So there's a good reason for, for that increase as well. So what what's the reason behind the, the, the large, very large apprenticeship increase? Um, well, the Low Pay Commission, who are who have the remit of uh, reviewing the rates for national minimum wage and national living wage. Well, they have two remits. Well, they have a number of remits now. But um, when it comes to the national minimum wage, they have a remit to set rates that don't kind of give rise to a loss of employment. So they have to be mindful of the impact that a rate for national minimum wage could have on employment figures. With a national living wage, when that was introduced, it was introduced with a set target in mind of being, I think it was 60% of median earnings was the original target within a three year period. Whereas, of course, now it has a new target. It met that target um, subject to any significant uh, economic disasters. I, I, that wasn't quite the term that the Chancellor used, but it was similar. Um, now, the national living wage has a new, um, sorry, national living yeah, national living wage. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, national living wage. Am I having a day that's today? That's mulled wine again, Samantha. Yeah, it, 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 wine again. Apologies. <laughs> national living wage rate um, has a, a new target now of being, um, uh, I said two thirds before, didn't I? No, I said 60% before. Now two thirds mm -hmm. of the median earnings by 
2024. Um, and last year, of course, it took a bit of a hit. So the, the low pay commission have to set a, they set kind of the graph and the increase that the living wage is going to have to have in order to achieve that target. And so one of the remits is to keep an eye on that graph. And last year, it took a bit of a hit um, due to the pandemic. Um, whereas this year, of course, it's back on target by 2024. Um, so um, uh, the low pay commission, on the other hand, to get back to apprenticeships, I, you thought I'd gone off on one again there, Simon, um, to get back to apprenticeships, the low pay commission <laughs> recommended last year um, that the uh, apprenticeship rate be aligned with the young people's rate, what used to be referred to as the young people's rate, um, because this is an area that they've been looking at closely during consultation. Um, and then next year, just for if you're interested, they are they intend to take a close look at the accommodation offset because the accommodation offset, whilst it is set at a rate, it is by far anything but a simple uh, subject to discuss and can quite often get an employer in hot water when it comes to national wage. Fantastic. Thank you, Samantha. So what do we need to do then to get employers ready for national living wage from the age of 21? Simon. Well, I think the government are doing that by increasing it so much by the 9.8%. Uh, They're in effect nudging employers to that goal so that it's naturally transitioning. Uh, but I think there's an element of we need to get in our head. It is rising that way. Um, the other comment I'll make about apprenticeships is um, HMRC are finding that lots of employers are paying apprentices, which is great, except when they look at them in any detail they find they're not apprentices at all. So there's a lot of people being called apprentice where there's no apprenticeship agreement in place, no training, uh, potentially being a, done under an approved uh, training plan. Um, so they're not an apprentice at all. And so I think that's an element of uh, some alignment as well in that uh, lower ages, because most will be young people, is to actually bring them up to their age rate as a minimum. Um, uh, of course, some will be older, but uh, just be careful. Just because you call someone an apprentice doesn't mean they are. Um, the, it's amazing the other aspect of just how much determination yeah. needs to be made across so many different things, right? A lot of it falls in their laps, constantly determining one thing over another, which is uh, yeah, it's a really really good point. Well made, this one. Yeah, the the other aspect here is because these rates are rising so much. If you're operating smart or salary sacrifice pensions. I don't know, Andy, if you've got something to say on that sort of, uh, well, we've got that at the end, so I'll leave that. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, it's it's all part of preparation, isn't it? Yeah, okay, I'm sure you could have got a Christmas uh, Christmas thing in there, Simon, we just missed out. So let's come, we'll come back to Andy in just a moment, because we're going to finish with, uh, with the pensions piece. And I've also had a question come in about autonomous pensions. So we're going to hold that for a moment, Emily, and we'll come to that question in just a moment. Just before I ask, um, I'm going to come to Lou in a minute about SAP and Alabasta. But before we do, we're going to have, we've got to have a little bit of time today, really, hopefully, where we can talk a little bit about some hot topics. If you do have any questions that you haven't asked yet, please be conscious of time, get them in the chat box now, and I'll try and get through to them for the end of the session. So I'm um, coming over to you, Lou, if I may. Um, any considerations in relation to SMP and Alabasta? I think uh, based on the week that I've had this week, um, <laughs> Alabaster has um, been, it started on Monday and even this morning. Um, I think it's important that everybody remembers, going back to basics, so I'm sorry, to go back to basics, if a pay rise is processed at any time from the start of the employee's qualifying period 
for the calculation until the end of the period of maternity leave, the employer is obligated to recalculate the SMP due. And yes, I am reading that. That is so important because the number of um, clients and individuals who come, even on social media, are asking about the alabaster ruling and how to calculate maternity pay, it is important that even if that person is off and a pay rise comes through, that we remember to recalculate it and go back. And also, we also have to follow whatever is in line with their contract to sort of bring John into it. Contracts for anybody are important, but particularly important whenever it comes to SMP, the alabaster and ladies. And it's very important that we always remember remember and consider that. Sorry, Nick. That's not perfect. And not nice to put. I'm glad I came to the right person for that one. It sounds like it's been on your agenda this week, Lou, which is great. So Simon, um, we're going to, uh, I'll let you lead into Andy, which is the uh, salary sacrifice pension considerations we need to consider. Any other salary sacrifice things we need to consider, Simon, from a payroll perspective? Well, definitely, because some people probably still got bike schemes in place. They may have childcare vouchers. They may have uh, pension salary sacrifice. Um, the amount of money that can be sacrificed will shrink as a result of NMW rising and national living wage. Uh, just understand that. If you have a salary sacrifice in place, it does reduce national minimum wage, national living wage. Interestingly, it doesn't reduce the real living wage or the London living wage because that's about the rate you kind of start with. So you don't breach the living wage foundation rules, but you do breach the law in relation to minimum wage. Super. And Andy, from a, a pensions considerations piece, what do we need to consider? Yes, from picking up on what Simon said, yes, the obviously then if you have got a salary sacrifice pension scheme in place and you can no longer sacrifice because the pay has gone up um, due to national minimum wage increases and therefore you've got to pay national minimum wage, you cannot salary sacrifice against national minimum wage, then you're going to have to change that person into normal contributions, normal deductions from pay. So the salary sacrifice arrangement, which is contractual, um, needs to be changed. The pension contributions need to be paid over. So that needs to be discussed. Either you continue paying as an employer the extra or, or you need to sort it out as an employer as to what needs to go on. But I would guess that most people will just convert the salary sacrifice arrangement would come to an end, contractual change, and then the normal contributions will start um, from the effective date of national minimum wage increase. Um, I think in general sense, national minimum wage, if you are inspected by HMRC and you're discovered that you are paying less than national minimum wage, then automatic enrollment kicks in on that. You, as you're checking back, maybe as far as six years, HMRC may go back for national wage compliance checks. And if they discover that someone should have been paid an extra £10 two years ago, then that £10 should have been paid two years ago. And if that person then triggers automatic enrolment two years ago, they get put into the scheme. And contributions will kick in from that enrolment date. You have to send them a letter say you've been automatically enrolled two years ago. You have the right to opt out and maybe they will opt out. Um, and then there won't be any contributions to pay. But if, if they don't opt out, then there's two years worth of arrears of employer contributions. If the regulator gets involved, we'll probably ask you as an employer to pay the employee contributions. 
Um, but even if the employer has to pay it, then we would expect those to be paid um, in instalments. Good points. Good. Was that a question coming here for you, Andy? If, if we may, I've got a from Emily. It says that if an employee is auto enrolled and they opt out within the opt out period, at what point do we need to re enroll them? Um, then, um, so they've been automatically enrolled, they've chosen to opt out. The next time they're going to be looked at for automatic enrollment is the re enrollment date. And if that re enrollment date, which is every three years or so from staging date due to start date, if that if that re-enrollment date happens to fall within a year of that person opting out, then as an employer you can choose not to re-enroll them. But if it's if the re-enrollment date is more than a year after they've opted out, then you have to assess them again. And if they trigger for automatic enrollment re-enrollment, you have to put them in. And they may choose to opt out again. That's their choice. Super. Now for the first time in a long time, I think it's in, in probably four or five sessions, we've got about two and a half minutes to hit hot topics and I'm quite excited because there's a question that I'm really keen to ask and they come back to John on this one which we're seeing as payroll recruiters we're seeing loads and loads of employers now offering new benefits one of those is unlimited holiday and it sounds great but is it so I'd like to come to John and just see what your experience is with these unlimited holiday schemes and perhaps some considerations we need to think about if you are in the payroll departments I guess uh, for one of these companies that's offering such a scheme Right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief. We're, we're seeing an increase in them. Um, it tends to be with larger employers rather than smaller employers um, is our experience of it. Um, overall, our view is, is we think it's potentially a, a good thing uh, and employers are embracing it. Um, but there's an element there. I think deep down, it's all about whether you trust your workforce, um, to be frank. And uh, look, there's a war for talent going on. Um, everyone's got used to working at home, being more flexible. Uh, and I think employers are, are, are getting more used to the idea and in terms of productivity. They think that that will increase in terms of retention and recruitment. They think it will assist uh, with that as well, uh, create some HR issues. You know, if you've got someone who's taking 60 days holiday uh, a year because that's what they want to do, uh, there's someone else who's going to have to be picking up their work in the workplace. So there are some HR issues to, to, to think through. Uh, but overall, I think it's a, a positive move. I know one thing that we've discovered is unlimited holiday schemes doesn't necessarily mean you get unlimited holiday. It still needs to be approved by your manager and it can be denied. So I think there's a, there's a thing there that some people misunderstand it. And also for employers that think for those that don't take holiday, don't have to pay any holiday. Again, if you're contracted or there's a statutory holiday allowance there, you still need to uh, you know, be in adherence to those. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, people, th th there's no obligation on people to take all their holiday uh, in a given year if that's not what they want to do. But what you've got to do is give people the opportunity to take their statutory minimum holiday because, after all, working time regulations is a, a health and safety issue. Um, that's the, the, the fundamental point. Um, so you want to you want your staff to take their, their holiday um, because it's good for them. Couldn't agree more. And last but not least, we've got one minute here, Simon, and being on the uh, the IREN committee, and I'll come to you here on agent PAYE access. Can you just expand on that? We've got about 30 seconds. So not wanting to push you, but 30 seconds to talk about agent PAYE access. Yeah, sure. Uh, previously, agents or bureaus or your payroll supplier could not see your account. 
but since uh, a few weeks back that's been and over the past year it's been expanded low, slowly from smaller bureaus to larger bureaus to larger agents uh, that uh, actually potentially your agents can be authorized now to see your dashboard so they know what you're talking about potentially when you say you've got underpayments and uh, uh, interest appearing whereas before they had no clue whether that was there or not Fantastic. Well, I just want to take this opportunity to say a huge thank you to our panel for their wisdom today. I want to thank everyone who's joined us. Wish you all a very festive and mulled wine filled Christmas. I want to wish you all a wonderful new year. We will all be back again in January 2022. My name is Nick Day. We've been joined by Lou Gray, Samantha Mann, Simon Parsons, John Keeble and Andy Nichols. And from us all, happy Christmas and a happy new year. See you soon. Happy Christmas. Bye. Happy Christmas. Bye. See you next year. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Bye. Bye.